Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football fan engagement editor at Chronicle Live. And this is the 13th instalment of our walkthrough the entire history of Newcastle United. Last week's episode brought us up to 1946 which is where we're picking up today. We'll cover the club's rebuild after World War One, a promotion campaign and the start of a really special period for Newcastle United. Joining me as ever is Newcastle United's official club historian, Paul Joannou, and we're delighted to welcome another special guest. Stephen Allett is with us to discuss 1946 to 1950. Stephen, before we discuss Newcastle's return to action after World War II, I was wondering if you could just give us and the listeners a bit of a background on yourself, particularly with regards to your interest in Newcastle and the history of the club. Yes, sure. Sort of. Um, I've always been interested in history anyway. So I've worked for English Heritage Stroke Historic England for many years. Um, and I sort of, in my spare time, I was also writing and researching football alongside trying to keep West Slop and Celtic going in the, uh, the non-league football. Uh, so I wrote for fanzines for years and such like, uh, and always had my own historical um, database and such like, although I bow to Paul and his colleagues on that sort of front. And in the last couple of years, I've written articles for the Newcastle Quarterly, Newcastle Historian, which Paul writes for as well. Um, and there's also a new publication coming out later this month called Newcastle Collectibles, which really focuses on all the ephemera throughout the ages of Newcastle from programmes, stickers, badges, all that type of stuff, but also art, music, records, videos, and that type of thing. So the first edition of that was later this month, and hopefully that'll go well. From a personal point of view, my dad was always interested in football. He played football locally to a reasonable standard. So inevitably, I was dragged into it and literally dragged up to New to St. James's Park one Christmas just before, actually up the whole family, but my dad got fed up with Christmas shopping. And in those days, he could just go up to St. James's Park. So he said, I've had enough. Dragged me up there, plonked me on a barrier. I didn't know what was going on and proceeded to see Newcastle beat Ipswich 2-0. I had to look up after, years later to see actually what the score was and who scored because I was oblivious to it all. It was just, But it was so engrossing uh, that I just... I was the book bit in from from there onwards, and that was back in December 1968, uh, and I've been going ever since. Um, and I've had a t- season ticket in East Stand, I think not far from Paul actually, sort of um, for ooh, 20, 30 years now, I think. Uh, so yeah, a long history, and like everybody else, long suffering. Never seen any silver, meaningful silverware in that time. <laughs> Well, yeah, 1968 is a good time to start supporting the club, I guess, yeah. after, uh, given what happens in the year after. But yeah, thanks thanks for doing this today and uh, some great historical pedigree on the show today with yourself and Paul. So looking forward to it. Paul, okay. coming to you then, we're, we've hit 1946. How did the landscape look at St James's Park in terms of where the club was after the war had ended? Well, after the Second World War, uh, Newcastle were, of course, still a second division club manager, Tom Mather, who, who was appointed during the 30s, had departed uh, during the war. And to begin with, United didn't replace him with director Stan Seymour very much hands-on. 
uh, he worked alongside uh, trainer Norman Smith, who came in just before the war, uh, and he became a long-term assistant to the club right through the 40s, 50s, and into the 1960s. Promotion was, of course, the target, and, and that was the main focus. Uh, uh, and they were looking very good in 1946-47 to achieve that until uh, the FA Cup came along in January. Players-wise, we touched upon it in the last show, there was an extremely talented crop of youngsters emerging. Can you talk a bit about some of the names that were signed in the transfer market who were brought in to supplement these talented youngsters? Yeah, well, United did a lot of wheeling and dealing in the transfer market in the immediate post-war years. Uh, new men arrived to blend with the homegrown youngsters, people like uh, Jackie Milburn and Charlie Wayman, uh, who actually scored 34 goals that season. Joe Harvey had arrived the previous season in 1945-1946, and Frank Brennan joined him. Uh, he became uh, the rock at the heart of United's defence uh, and cost £7,500 from Airdrie. Joe Harvey and Brennan were key factors in United's new lineup. They also paid big fees for, for Albert Sibley and George Stobart, uh, as well as Roy Bentley. Uh, who went on to play for England and skip at Chelsea to the very first title in 1955. Um, Bob Fraser came in too at fullback, as did a special playmaker. Uh, uh, he came from Bradford, a chap called Led Shackleton. Uh, he cost a club record fee of £13,000. Unfortunately, he was only to remain at St James's Park for a short period before falling out with the club, like many did at this time, and, and he moved to Sunderland. But what a player and, and what a... What an opening he had for the black and whites. Yes. Now, the scoreline 13-0 and Newport County is, is familiar to some Newcastle fans, I feel. It, any trivia or, or stat compilation on the club almost always features this record win. And the 46-47 season was when it happened. It will probably never be beaten at Newcastle. We have to talk about it in a bit of context and detail. Stephen, what can you tell us about this incredible match? Yeah, it's a strange one because it was actually Newcastle's only win in seven league games. So it kind of stands out if you look at the fixtures that season. In poor old Newport County, it was their first season at that level. They'd just got promoted before the war. Then obviously, like everybody else, were hit by the war. Basically, they just had a very weak side. I don't think they underestimated Newcastle or anything. Newcastle, obviously, it was a perfect storm. They had the new players like Len Shackleton, who was always going to make an impact. I'll say Newport just really had a quite poor team and I think they were struggling off the pitch as well. They, they've been threatened with losing their ground at Summerton Park, uh, apparently the Greyhound company that owned the ground uh, threatened to uh, get rid of them out of the place um, and take up, get rid of their lease. So they had that sort of field issues as well. So really they, um, they were a struggling side and they'd already been beaten 6-1 on the opening day of the season. And just seven days before they played Newcastle, they were clobbered 7-2 off West Brom. Um, mm -hmm. And a report after that game said, um, nothing could be more certain than if West Brom had finished with any strength, they could have uh, set a new goal, re goal scoring record today. <laughs> Sadly for Newport, it only took seven days for that actually to occur. Um, <laughs> Yet, funny enough, Newport tried to bounce back for that, give them credit. Two days later, they were only beaten 3-1 off Spurs, um, who were a reasonable side that season as well. Um, they then tried to um, raise money off the pitch. They actually had a public meeting to get new players in. Uh, there was 2,000 people apparently clamouring to get in there. And, um, and it was aims to get 
10, 20,000 pounds. In the end, it fizzled out and they only got their 2,000 pounds and they ended up the season bottom of the division um, inevitably and got relegated. However, typically of Newcastle United, 13 0 in the home game, they got beat 4 2 in the reverse fixture, <laughs> which was yeah. very late on. It was June because of the bad winter that year. It was actually June before that game was played, but uh, right. Newcastle ended up getting beat 4 2. Only Newcastle can do that 13 0. 2-4. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Any, <laughs> any details on the game? There's a bit of a debate around whether Len Shackleton scored five or six in the game. There was no dubious goals committee in 1946 to thrash that one out. Well, that's right. It seems to have changed over the years, and Paul obviously is sort of the, the ultimate sort of uh, arbiter on this. But, uh, I mean, it should have been 14-0 because Charlie Wayman missed a penalty very early in the game, and uh, uh, that, that would have set an even different record. But... Uh, yeah, I think Newport just basically they had weak players all the place, and Newcastle just sort of ripped them to shreds, really, sort of. A, but I say it was a, an outlier amongst Newcastle's um, results uh, for a while. Um, it took until a bit later for Newcastle to click into form, really, sort of. Uh, mm. So poor old sort of. But that on goal, yes, um, I think it was a guy called Ken Wookie. <laughs> who um, actually deflected the, the ball in. And as nowadays, it probably would have been given as a sort of uh, uh, an own goal. But uh, in those days, I'd, I haven't actually seen the footage of that. I don't know if any exists, Paul. Um, no, I've never seen any footage. There's a one. There's, there's half a dozen stills of the game. Mm. Uh, so we don't actually know if, if Shackleton's shot... Uh, which hit Wookie was going in the net or not. So, uh, but the official record gives the goal to Shackleton. So he scored uh, a quite amazing double hat trick on his debut, and and uh, that's got to be some sort of record as well. You know, to to come in after a a big fee, please first a game uh, against all right a relatively poor side, but but even then to score six goals on your debut and. A hat trick within um, round about eight minutes uh, in the first half. You know, it was just quite amazing. You know, apparently that day Shackleton just ran the whole show, um, and he was a player, a schemer, uh, a talented inside forward who had all the skills in the world, and uh, he just turned it on and uh, started to, uh, you know, in effect, take the Mickey out of Newport by the end of the game. So uh, he was quite a player and unfortunately uh, played most of his football for the Red and Whites of Wearside. Yes, that's a shame. At least he was able to play a bit on uh, Tyneside and uh, talk about laying down a marker, six goals. That is a a good start to your your campaign at Newcastle. Looking at the league table for this season, 46-47, Newcastle scored 95 goals in their 42 league games but conceded 62. A bit of a mad season, this one, by the sounds of things. I think, um, yeah, when you read various match reports, quite a few opposition sort of managers at the time suggested that if Newcastle had had even a a more solid goalkeeper, that goals conceded column might well have gone down a bit. Um, There was quite a few people said if they actually invested more money in the likes of Frank Swift or whatever for £20,000, and they were buying big at the time, then perhaps that might just have made that season uh, even better than than it actually ended up being. But um, during the season, I think Newcastle played four different goalkeepers in league games. So um, it's it's quite a good quiz question for any real diehard Newcastle fans to name the four keepers uh, who played that season, because... Until I looked it up, I wouldn't have known any more than that. I guess I would have got two. I wouldn't have got the other two. That's for certain. <laughs> well, they did. They did make things. Uh, they did change that at the end of the season, of course, getting a new yeah. keeper, which mm. we'll, we'll come on to. But uh, you know, it was. I suppose 
straight after the war, they had to get things bedded in and they did bring in new players in defence that season. They didn't all quickly knit together, but uh, that did happen very shortly. But uh, up front, they were just uh, sensational. You know, with apart from Weyman's 34 goals in that season, Shackleton and Bentley both scored 22. And then you had Milburn tip, uh, chipping in with a few goals as well. So, uh, you know, the crowd loved it. They didn't get promoted. But an average gate at Gallagher of nearly 50,000 proved that it was uh, great entertainment. And those attendances would even get bigger and louder as uh, the, the following seasons continued. Yeah, amazing. Amazing attendances for a second division club at the time. Paul, staying with you, into 1947, things are, are looking good. Newcastle are fourth in Division 2. Then the FA Cup starts and they even managed to put a cup run together, don't they? Well, yes, that, that was really the, the problem for the season. Apart from uh, having a, a, a defence which leaked a few goals, um, the FA Cup overtook everything uh, when it started in January. So, you know, they were distracted by the, the FA Cup um, when it opened in January. Um, they fell away in the promotion race uh, as the club continued through the semi-final, uh, which was played at Elland Road that season. Uh, without a manager, uh, there was a bit of player unrest and trouble in the camp. Uh, and it, it all came to a head and affected the side against Charlton in that semi-final, who were then a good top-flight team um, in, the, uh, in, in England. They lost 4-0, didn't play well, and dropped fifth in the table, and a fallout followed after, after that defeat. Wow. I like to quote that was used, that was in the Sunday Sun after the four 0 defeat. It sort of said um, it summed it up as knee beer, knee bait, knee goals. Because um, apparently, because the rashling's still on, the regular pubs down around Ellen Road sort of uh, kept the, their beer supplies for their regulars, and so the Newcastle fans could get any. And all the cafes and eating places were oversubscribed as well. Uh, so Newcastle fans couldn't you get anything to eat? Never mind sort of. Uh, uh, to sort of uh, compensate, compensate getting uh, thrashed as well. Sort of a 35-year-old called Don Welsh just strolled through the game for sort of Charlton and sort of... Uh... But to be fair, Charlton had been cup finalists the previous season, so there were no mugs. And Newcastle were, as I say, still the second division side, but uh, it's uh, it was still a bit disappointing sort of day all around. <laughs> and you mentioned a po- uh, like a fallout, Paul. Is there any more detail on that? How did they rectify that? Well, the... There were certain players who who had various disputes with the club's hierarchy. Remember, we didn't have a manager, so it was just the players, the trainer and the directors. Len Shackleton, Charlie Wayman, even Milburn and Joe Harvey uh, all had various uh, disputes. There was some surrounding the accommodation at the time. Most players were given club houses you know they didn't have they didn't join the club and then buy their own house that they, they were given a club house uh, usually in Fenham or Heaton and uh, one or two of them weren't up to scratch and uh, that caused problems within the camp there was also a bit of unrest about uh, match tickets for families and one or two players didn't get on with Norman Smith who could be a bit difficult so all of that put together there was a, a bit of an unhappy dressing room and that had to be resolved. And, and by the end of the season, just before the end of the season, a new manager arrived uh, to sort things out and to steady the Magpie ship. Now, that was Luton Town's highly rated George Martin, an ex-Everton player, pre-war Everton player. He took over and was to do an excellent job alongside Seymour. 
Interesting. Stephen, any more information on the housing provision role that played a bit of unrest in this and, and, and how it affected Newcastle? That Joe Harvey was caught up in this as well, I believe. Yeah, I think, as Paul said, it, it, was, it was pretty much the uh, standard for those days as kind of players to, to get the houses. Um, and it's just interesting that somebody like Joe Harvey also went on to be a true club legend, um, was embroiled in this, and Len Shackleton, who was known a bit more as a sort of a... Sort of, sort of a bloke with a bit more sort of a temper, shall we say, sort of a... But it's interesting in comparison to the present day where you've got Harry Kane refusing to turn up for training and such like, apparently, then the same from Joe Harvey and Len Shackleton all those years ago. So nothing changes in football at the end of the day, just the players. But uh, luckily, uh, we did manage to keep Joe Harvey, although obviously we lost Shackleton longer term. And obviously that's great because it went on to play an incredible role in the next season and going on for the next 30, 40 years with the club. So Newcastle missed out on promotion again, despite almost scoring 100 goals. And 1947-48 would be their eighth season out of the top flight. Paul, this is still the longest period of absence in their history to date, isn't it? So the next season must have been, promotion must have been a must. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, the new manager, Martin, with Stan Seymour, uh, they, they just had to make sure that they got back to the top flight. Now on the playing side, there were ins and outs at St James's Park as United purchased and sold big. You know, Shackleton, Wayman, Bentley all went for large fees. And in came a new goalkeeper, as we touched on before. Jack Fairbrother was signed, and he was a good, tall, uh, well-built, steady goalkeeper. Uh, and a new goal, a new striker came in called George Lowry uh, for another record club signing. But the Welshman wasn't a success, unfortunately. Uh, but Jackie Milburn moved from his wing position uh, to take over the number nine shirt, and he was an immediate success uh, in that position. And Harvey and Brennan consolidated their role at the back and in midfield, remembering that Harvey was a wing half then, sort of half a midfield player and half a defender, if you like. And they, those two players held the side together. Yes, at this point, I'd like to mention my Frank Brennan claim to fame. He, uh, he lived in Whitley Bay towards the end of his life and enjoyed his retirement there. And I remember getting his autograph at St Edward's Parish Church in the mid-90s, and he was a lovely man. And then between 2005 and 2010, I actually lived in his old house in Whitley Bay, which was uh, I didn't find out until after I'd lived there, which was uh, that, that was a, a big honour. But, Paul, please, can you tell us some more about Frank, who became a true United legend, didn't he? Well, he did, and as you say, he was a lovely man uh, and a great footballer. I met and interviewed most of the 1940s and 1950s greats in their later years, uh, and all of them were, were quite special. I interviewed Frank at his local club in Whitley Bay a couple of times. Um, he had a favourite club, uh, just no doubt along the road from, from the house you lived in. And big Frank, and he was big, you know, he was six foot three and, and well built, and he relished the contest with some of the great centre forwards uh, of that era. Uh, and there were plenty of good centre forwards. Nat Lofthouse, Tommy Lawton and Stan Mortensen. And without doubt, he's Newcastle United's best centre-half by far. Um, he spent almost 10 years with the club, twice an FA Cup winner after winning promotion, and he totaled 349 games for the club. Unfortunately, he fell out with Newcastle's directors. He wasn't the first or the last to do so at the end of his career after the 1952 Cup win. And it was a very controversial fallout, You know, having to... You know, Frank had to, in effect, go into non-league football uh, because Newcastle held his registration and put a far too high fee on his head 
so he couldn't be transferred. And you know, it was very unpopular. The, the fans backed Brennan and the club were, were very much in the in the wrong and criticised. And, and there was meetings at the City Hall in Newcastle about the treatment of Brennan. There was even words said at the Trade Union Congress about the treatment of footballers and Brennan in particular. But he left Newcastle, went to North Shields and, and much later uh, came back to North Shields and, and managed them to the FA Amateur Cup win. And he remained a hugely popular character on Tyneside uh, right up to his later years. And, and of course, you know, a lot of people of my age remember his sports shop in Newcastle, which rivaled the Stan Seymour sports shop. And, and maybe some of that was uh, some of that was the friction between uh, the player and club during the 1950s. Mm. Sport shops in Newcastle United, eh? They uh, go hand in hand, don't they, throughout the years. Thankfully, 1947-48 was the last campaign in Division 2 for a good while, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, United challenged at the top all season with uh, Birmingham City, Sheffield Wednesday and Southampton. They had an exceptional home record and they were roared on by... Uh, a f- fantastic crowd at St James's Park, an average of 56,298 at league games was recorded. And that was a national record for a long, long time. Uh, and remember, there were a second tier club, second division football. And not until Manchester United recorded a bit more back, back in 1968 was that beaten. So it was quite a, an amazing um, support that the club received in, in 47-48. And Stephen, there was some success for Newcastle's reserves in this season, 47-48, showing that there was plenty of strength and depth building at the club. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's the only time that Newcastle ever won the reserve competition. In recent years, it's been a bit sort of all over the place, the reserve. But in those days, it was pretty much the Central League. And, and obviously, those games used to, by and large, run on Saturdays, alternative to the first-team games. But, yeah, that was the first time they won it. They and again, building on the attendances thing that um, Paul's just mentioned for the first team, the, the even the reserve side, there's a total of 271,000 fans attended the home uh, reserve games that season, an average of 12,923, which is incredible for reserves for football. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, they started off the season well. They won 16 of the first 19 games. And I think critically, they beat Man, Manchester United reserves double header before Christmas um, and that Manchester United at that point they hadn't really sort of got their reserve site together they did towards the back end of the season and they ran Newcastle very close so it was it was very lucky Newcastle caught, caught them while they were sort of still cold a bit early doors um, but yeah it was a real mix they had future stars like Ernie Taylor George Hare Tommy Thompson and Charlie Crow and Bobby Powell and Ron Batty coming through and then they had some old stages who didn't play as many first team games like Todd Smith, who was captain and such like. Um, so they had a right mixture of real excellent youngsters coming through, plus some old stages, and they were very hard to beat. Um, funny enough, most of the goals came from a guy called Andy Donaldson. He scored 33 goals, um, but never really broke through with the first team. How could he with the likes of Milburn and <laughs> and all those people in front of him, Robledo? Um, but he did go on to have a decent first-class career elsewhere um, in the lower leagues, um, especially at Peterborough United. So it just shows you there was a lot of talent in that side. Even not all of them actually made it at Newcastle. But it was nice to actually get a trophy uh, for the, the second team as well. Absolutely. Can't have enough trophies at Newcastle United. Oh, no. <laughs> One would be good. <laughs> 
Paul, throwing it back to you then, how did Newcastle get over the line and back into Division 1? It had been 14 years since they'd been away. Yeah, well, Easter was uh, the crucial time, like so often in football. Promotion success was achieved after you know three games. We played Fulham at home and 54,000 saw us win 1-0. Uh, so that was a good two points. Uh, and then the, the big one was against Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, on Good Friday, again at St James's Park. 66,000 turned up for that and saw a scintillating contest. It was really a, a absolutely brilliant, breathtaking game. Uh, it was end-to-end for 90 minutes. United winning 4-2 uh, in the end after being behind uh, with a, a, a young Irish stand-in uh, inside forward called Frank Houghton, uh, the hero with two goals. Uh, Newcastle were just about there. And they went to Tottenham at White Hart Lane and gained the point needed to secure promotion as runners up to Birmingham. Mm. And staying with you, Paul, straight into 1948-49, the momentum seemed to stay with them, didn't it? And they had a, a really successful first campaign back in Division 1. Yeah, well, back in the big time, uh, they immediately joined uh, the top-ranked clubs. Newcastle challenged for the title uh, in in the second spot place for for much of the season um, in a race for silver where with Portsmouth um, and back then Portsmouth had a wonderful lineup uh, including Jimmy Schooler who later of course went on to join Newcastle and skip uh, uh, the club. Newcastle were were at the top at Christmas uh, but by April Portsmouth uh, were favourites. Newcastle had, had to beat them to, in a crunch game on Tyneside uh, but Pompey gave the Magpies quite a lesson winning 5-0 in front of uh, 60,000. They went on to lift the trophy as Newcastle slipped to fourth position in the race uh, by the end of the campaign. Go ahead, Stephen. Do you have any I was just going to say that was interesting. That game against Portsmouth quite uh, well known for uh, the fact that all five Portsmouth goals came from their wingmen and all five were headers. So I think Froggett got a hat-trick and Harris got the other two. So it kind of sort of pointed out where Newcastle had a, a bit weak that day, to say the least. Uh, I think two of them actually were would have been offside, but for the fact Joe Harvey tried to intervene and backheaded them, uh, which immediately played in those days, touching the ball last as an opponent, played the, the guy onside. And uh, so... But as Paul said, uh, all the reports seem to suggest that we were absolutely ripped and Portsmouth by four worthy champions that season. Yes, fair play, fair play. And we should mention at this point, Paul, that the club took a post-season tour to North America, didn't they? And something they hadn't done before. Well, yeah, it was a landmark uh, tour, the first overseas trip to North America uh, in the close season of 1949. Um, they sailed out on the Queen Mary, I think it was, uh, a very luxurious trip out, out to uh, New York and uh, spent six weeks touring around, playing lots and lots of exhibition games. Um, and when they came back, uh, they had a new, you know, a, a new and talented lineup was just about knitted together uh, as the 50s began. They would now look to the FA Cup as a competition to bring silverware back to the Tyneside, really, but not until another season of just challenging Portsmouth at the top during 1949-50. But yet again, they just slipped up um, and Portsmouth uh, took the title uh, for the second time running. Yeah, but pretty remarkable finishing fourth as a promoted team. And they would they would go on to, to have another go at the title the following season, didn't they? Yeah, well, they finished fifth that season. Um, they, they, they weren't quite as good as uh, the previous season, but they made a, a late season challenge to Portsmouth, but fell away 
uh, uh, once more and, and Portsmouth quite easily lifted the title. Uh, again, with Jimmy Schooler being a key player in a very good lineup. Yeah, we played Portsmouth in the very first game of the season, I think, uh, and apparently there were people queuing up six hours before the game, as would be the case for Newcastle fans. Uh, but apparently it was a, a real heat wave. So, but then they proceeded after that to see got beat three one in that opening game. I think we lost our first three games. So as Paul said, we never got that initial traction to kick on and our charge was just too late at the end of the season and Portsmouth did the double of us again for two the second season in succession so again we just weren't quite as good enough as Portsmouth really. So as the 40s closes and the 50s begin um, you know Newcastle had been 18 years without a trophy which at this time was a long barren period obviously as modern day Newcastle fans were used to trophyless periods but they went big in the transfer market for the 50s didn't they to try and Furnish the trophy cabinet with some more silverware. Yeah, they spent big. Uh, they, they had lots of money with all those crowds coming in. Uh, the the cash in the bank was was uh, hefty. So quality players arrived, including three of Newcastle United's finest. You know, a Scottish winger called Bobby Mitchell arrived for seventeen thousand pounds from Third Lanark, uh, and he was to be just sensational during the nineteen fifties, nicknamed Bobby Dazzler. Uh, a Chilean, George Robledo, came with his brother Ted from Barnsley for £23,000. Um, and he, again, was to become uh, one of the best players Newcastle have had up front. Uh, and an Irish fullback called Alf McMichael uh, came in from Linfield. And he was a solid and cultured fullback right through the 1950s. There was another big signing in Colin Gibson from Cardiff City. He cost 15000 But like Lowry before him, uh, wasn't a success. And it was left up front to really uh, Jackie Milburn and George Robledo to um, form an understanding and create a dangerous partnership in attack. Um, and they were to become England's most feared strike force as the 1950s began. Absolutely. Stephen, anything to add as the 40s finishes and the exciting 50s era begins for Newcastle? No, just like Paul says, I mean, it would, it would have been fantastic to have been around at the time to see that team. It's, it's a real regret. I, I mean, as you say, you see the bits of Pathé News and such like in there, jumpy staccato, and uh, it's it's just fabulous to see. Well, it'd be nice to see the attacking side after the last few years, but also just um, to see something which was exciting and uh, and obviously was leading to the early 50s. I just wish Newcastle had really focused on the league rather than get distracted by the Cup. It does show how important the FA Cup was in those days. That, But really, one of those four seasons, Newcastle really should have pushed on and perhaps challenged Ports with a bit nearer. And it'd be nice to have got rid of that albatross off the neck that not having won since 26-27. It still would be a long time, but it'd been a little bit nearer than, uh, than it is now. <laughs> I know, I know. As we mentioned when we covered that title win, it's getting on for 100 years. Oh. And... Uh, <laughs> Probably will click over that time about the way things are going, but um, we'll save that for another time. That's another great yeah. episode, gentlemen, and it does tee us up lovely for a fantastic instalment next week when we get to talk about a couple of FA Cup wins. Three of them will happen uh, at Wembley in the 50s, so that'll be fantastic to discuss. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you as our guest. Thank you. And in the meantime, if you have any Newcastle United history questions, listener, or observations, or stories, or 
anything connected to the history of the club, you can email those through to us. We have a special email address set up at eibwpodcast at reachplc. Or you can tweet me. A couple of listeners have done that. I'm at Ketchell on Twitter. And uh, just left for me to say, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. And follow us on social media, Chronicle Lives, Newcastle United channels. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicle, our history series. It comes out every Wednesday. And lastly, stay up to date with Everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. They are free. You get a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup, and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox. Put the link to that in the show notes. You can hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanne, and our special guest, Stephen Allett. <laughs>